Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague. On today's show, folks, we're honored we have Dr. Jay Baruch with us in his book, Tornado of Life. Ed, how's it going? I have to say I've become a little bit of a hypochondriac after reading this book, Ron, uh, it, and we'll perhaps talk a little bit more about that when I get on with uh, with, with Dr. Jay, but, but let's get him in here. Excellent. Well, Dr. Jay Baruch is a practicing emergency room physician, professor of emergency medicine at Brown University Alpert Medical School, and his recent book is Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER, and that's what we will discuss today on the show. And Dr. Jay, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Hey, it's really great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, this is wonderful. Well, I'll confess to you, I'm kind of a medical book junkie. I love reading stories about ER doctors and surgeons and just all the issues that you guys have to deal with. But I'm always curious, when did you know that you wanted to be a doctor? Uh, actually, during college. Uh, and I, I mean, I went to college to, as an English major. I always thought I was going to be a writer and an English an English professor. And I love literature and I love writing. And I took a and, and one course during college. It, it involved going to a local hospital and I'm talking to patients because I was, you know, an undergraduate student. Like, what else can <laughs> what else can we do without causing damage? And uh, and I. And really, the 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 privilege of being able to sort of talk to patients and hearing their stories, um, especially the stories of patients on the uh, oncology patients who were in the the cancer area, cancer unit, really sort of planted the seed for me about like my relationship with stories, and and so stories was really what pulled me into medicine in the first place. Wow. That's it. I love it because that's the whole sort of theme that runs through the whole book is the patient story and having the doctor understand it. You know, I was talking to Ed yesterday and he was reading the book and he said, this book is intense. And I, I would describe it as it's human. I mean, it, and your humanity comes through so well. Why did you, and then I found out your sister, <laughs> you, you're both ER doctors. Yeah. Uh, what what made you decide to go into ER? I like many uh, you know medical students who like sort of love stories and love literature. It seems that many of us um, end up going into psychiatry, you know. And I love psychiatry because you know I, I I truly did, and and I thought that was what I was going to go into when I as soon as I stepped up uh, stepped foot in medical school, and like the emergency department at that time this is like this is over 30 years ago this is like 35 years ago i mean I, I'm, I'm old as dirt and it was like a chaotic place you know and it was um the whole and the, the specialty itself was relatively young 
And when I was there, I felt so both terrified by everything that was there and the many challenges that came in through the door and invigorated. And there's a social justice um, mission that's at the foundation of medicine. Like this is the safety net. This is, this is like, we care for anybody and everybody. And the only way I can explain it guys is that it felt like home. Wow. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it just felt like home. And, uh, and, you know, and I signed the, the, the bottom line and luckily I was able to match and, and it's been my, my career ever since. And I've been very grateful for that opportunity. And you describe ER medicine as a dance with the unexpected. I just, that, that's a, such a great phrase. Uh, and, and you also say it's like improvisation. It's unscripted and unpredictable. And, and then you talk about thinking with stories uses, uses different muscles than thinking about stories. And of course, this is a major theme in a book, but can you explain just that part before we get into the stories a bit more that thinking with stories is different, uses different muscles and thinking about them? Yeah. I mean, I feel like oftentimes when we're um, analyzing stories, there's a sense of trying to find the answer, trying to like figure it out. You know, how does it, you know, and, 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 uh, and we take for granted what's there and then we move backward uh and the analysis is somewhat a little bit more reductive you know in a sense like well, let's just let's just examine the story and this, but when you're thinking with stories you're taking some um some elements that we take for granted you know and those elements include the fact that the story itself is not like this gem, this perfect thing, but it's uh, something that's evolving. Like patients will oftentimes be first trying to discover the story that they're trying to, to tell you while they're telling you the story. It's like I describe it as a first draft oftentimes. Um, and you have to be curious about like what's not not just what's included, but also what's left out. Like what's what's too tender that they don't want to, that they don't want to touch, what is what is hard? What experiences they're going through that are that are hard to put into words? So, you're moving outward, right? Like you're moving. You take into account the fact that patients aren't just telling you stories about their their illness, for example, but but as um, Arthur Frank, um, the narrative the sociologist and uh, narrative scholar, who I quote in the book, has written elsewhere that these stories are told through a wounded body. They're told through someone who's going through something deep and profound. And you have to be aware of that and um and account for that um when you're when you're listening and when you're trying to understand what exactly it is that they're telling you or trying to tell you. Yeah, you 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 did cite Arthur Frank there in the in his book, but what is it? Um It was a storyteller. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 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 he breaks out the different narratives, uh restitution, quest, and chaos. And I got to believe chaos is mostly the story in the ER, at least, uh, because it's a complete loss of control. And and how how do you how do you deal with that? Because I, I love your epigraph, by the way, you say you quote a writer who says we can learn a lot about a person in the very moment that language fails them. That's profound. Yeah, yeah that's Anna. That's Anna Devere Smith, the, the actor and 
you know, she is brilliant and I'm such a huge fan in her book on sort of acting and, and her own sort of semi by autobiographical book, as well as a, as a book about the art of what she does so brilliantly just speaks to me. Like it spoke to me in some of, some of the work that I was doing in medicine, um, like so many of other sort of texts that have to do with the arts and creativity somehow speaks to what the challenges that I'm facing in the emergency department, because I'm constantly facing uncertainty and, um, and it is a dance in the unexpected. You sort of need those nimble tools that that artists have. Um, and it begins with, I think, not just learning to accept uncertainty, but also how to, how do you use uncertainty? Like how 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 does uncertainty become your ally um uh in your um in your understanding of another human being, which I think is just so is the first step in a process that is both incredibly human because we're doing this with each other all the time. You know, like what I'm talking about is not really profound. It's just how humans have communicated with other humans throughout. <laughs> so since we first started telling stories to each other, like tens of thousands of years ago. And tell the story of Cheryl uh, from chapter three, which is where you got the title of the book. Yeah, she was someone who was going through uh, just just uh, just a bombardment of life's woes you know it was just she was going through medical problems there were social issues social um social issues there was substance use issues there was housing issues mental health issues and 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 she could never get on top of things. Like there's always one thing after another, after another, after another. And she was brought in um, and was brought in from the local shelter. And she was being sort of very, very loud. Uh, they made to see a doctor. And then when I got to see her, she was, um, you know, she didn't want to talk. And, and, it, and but the, the more you sort of, uh, I tried to try to listen to what she was trying to say. It was it was clear that it was just she was going through something profound, uh, and 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 finally she said, "You know, I'm just stuck in the tornado of life." And it's incredible how people um, who are suffering so much, who trying to get a grasp on their own experiences, can speak such poetry um and that and that expression just um not only just moved me i thought it would and, and it perfectly encapsulated what she was going through but it also dictated my response it gave me a hint about how to respond to her you know which getting back to frank which was realizing she's going through a chaos narrative and the worst thing you can do for the chaos narrative is try to take these these narratives that are so unruly and difficult to put in the language and are so hard and it is coming from a place of lack of control um is to try to make it a neat answer like it's just try to like say no we can just do this and everything's going to be fine it's not the case um and that your responsibility with the chaos narrative is to honor and dignify the storyteller and to let them tell their story and to be attentive and to be present um and to let and to at least make the gesture of trying to understand their experience as much as you can even though that can oftentimes be challenging. You, you say you have to sit with the chaos and you, 
You also point out the story isn't the vehicle toward a diagnosis, it's the destination. And to deny a chaos story is to deny the person and people denied cannot be cared for. But I guess, and, and I know this is an obvious question, Doc, but you're in an ER. Do you have time to sit with chaos? You have to, you know, and, and, and sometimes you're not necessarily talking about a lot of time, right? There's like, we take time to suture somebody and we have to suture somebody. And, uh, and I, and again, again, getting back to Frank, um, all the times, you know, when patients are telling you the narratives that they're doing, like their narrative is like the shipwreck. And, um, and sometimes you have to think about your responsibility to these narratives is a form of like narrative repair. Like how can you, and that begins by first trying to understand their story to the best you can in the time that you have. Excellent. Well, Jay, this has been great. It's flying by as I knew it would. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, you can send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel and consider becoming a member. You can do that at patreon.com slash TSOE. And that channel is sponsored by 90 Minds. Be kind to your mind, hire one. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for us at keyword voice America. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. The book is The Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER. The author is with us today on The Soul of Enterprise, Jay Baruch. And Jay, I've got a Lots of questions for you, too. We're not going to get through half of them, I'm sure. So um, the first thing I want to ask you about is, uh, in, and I should explain to you, one of the reasons why you're on a business show, <laughs> of all things. I was, I was wondering about that. <laughs> is because we talk about so many of these things in a different context. And one of them, because I work with a lot of people who do IT, and they're subject to a lot of data. 
And you're talking in the in the chapter with Jill L. You write this sentence: more data doesn't promise more certainty if it's in the service of the wrong questions. Even the best data gleaned from studying populations of patients is helpful only once I've identified the problem for which this data implies. And I cannot tell you how important that sentence is, not only for what you're talking about, but for business owners who have to glean through mounds and mounds of data and try to figure out where, where to what does this apply first? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and to, to, to take, that's just a great, great question um because I've, i find one of the big challenges we have is that when we have so much data you know and we are a sort of a data driven society and it's important like it's important to have data right um but i feel like we don't necessarily we take our lens we take our critical lens to data and say listen is this good data is this statistically significant data like we look at the studies we look at wherever it's coming from and saying like is this valid in some way however we don't necessarily the um examine as critically the way we're using data you know and like for the as you said like do, i mean are we using it to answer the right questions sometimes when you have so much data at your fingertips it can be it can drive your inquiry towards the data right because you have this if you have all these answers in what way are the questions that you're paying attention to somehow influenced by the responses that you have that are ready made um and that somehow provides certainty and in what ways are we using that to shape our curiosity and where we decide to pay attention to? Because it's really it's really challenging to go to those places where we don't necessarily have ready answers, but those are the places, at least in my work, that sometimes patients want us to go to. Mm -hmm. And and it, it's it's crazy. I, I I one one thing drives me crazy about my kids' uh, math studies is that they give them these word problems, and in the word problem, there's exactly three pieces of information, and you just got to figure out what formula you have to apply to the problems. And I, I try to explain to them, you know, this is how not how life works. You know what they should give you is they should give you a problem that has ten pieces of information, and you got to figure out which three are important. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like sometimes, and, and, and like to take that one step further, I feel like sometimes, you know, we should just give them answers and say, listen, what are the, name five questions that this could be. <laughs> reverse it, like play or Jeopardy. Just, just reverse it and say, what, what are the five questions that this could be the answer to? Um, but yes, because it's, and I think what we're getting to uh, is the data is, the data is doesn't replace the human, you know, because story, if we, if we think about stories and, and as they do in the book, mm -hmm. story is evidence too. Story is its own form of data. And what we don't realize is that in many ways, stories is more powerful than data. You know, like when you look at, when you get a bunch of information, you get a bunch of, you look at a research study, like I said, like you examine it critically, like you look at the methods, you look at, um, you look at the statistical um, methods that were used to analyze those methods and, the, and your results, and you come to conclusions. However, uh, like a convincing story is oftentimes believed 
without necessarily, you know, just because just on the on the virtue of it being a good story. And we don't always ask the question like, is this true? Did this really happen? Or why do we think the way we do? Why are we responding emotionally in the way that we are? And we don't examine the power of stories in the same way that we that we examine the power of data, especially in in, in environments like business or in medicine where so much is predicated on the data. Yeah, there's 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 a great episode of the Star Trek: The Next Generation where they're they're sitting in the bar. I think the the Klingon character was at Worf. I I forget. I'm not up on and and, and the guy who's played by Colmini, the Irish guy. And this is this this guy telling like this big huge story about some previous battle. And one says, "Is his story? Are his stories true?" And the Irishman Colmini says, "Who cares? They, he tells them well." <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and I think that that's what 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 you're you're coming to because there there's a story both before and after they leave the ER, isn't there? And there's sometimes yes. where you you said this this story that I that I was putting them in after they left the ER was in some cases somehow worse than when they came in. <laughs> yeah, I mean you have to put you realize that when you're like in the emergency department or like we're really like we're examining any set of problems, right? When we come to it. Um it's a slice in time, like we're entering in a slice of time and we have to account for how we got here. Like what's the backstory? What are the challenges? What are the obstacles that led to this moment that we're, we got called uh, to this moment? And um, and then what's gonna happen afterwards? And and I, and I getting back to, you, to your previous question, you know, when, when we think about data, um, we also have to think about like, what what's a good outcome? Like, what do we consider is going to be a good outcome? Um, and those are oftentimes questions that we have to be examining when we are thinking about the information that's available to us, when we're thinking about the data that's at our fingertips um, that we want to apply to this information, uh, to this situation, assuming that we've asked the right questions and we think we're using the data appropriately. And then what's a good outcome? Like, what's an acceptable outcome? And who's defining that? Is it us? Is it our patients? Is it our clients? Um, you know? Yeah. Well, the, you, you've led me right into the next sentence, which is again, quoting from the book, outcome measurements are important, but I fear that the emphasis on results has diminished the value of other practices foundational to medicine, but harder to quantify. Beautiful stuff. Thank you. Yeah. It's about the, it's about our process. You know, I, I feel like we need to be paying more attention to our process. And, um, and with, I, I'm a process geek. Like I love like, like, mostly in the arts like i want to know like even, even you know like artists like visual artists and i'm a terrible you know in that realm uh like i love to like look at artist notebooks you know i love to see you know how, like what they're thinking how they're getting to what they finally did the finally the, the finished product because the finished product is really just uh uh and uh, a, a final illustration or a final manifestation of our mind at work is all those little decisions that led to that moment and so it's really i'm really fascinated by like by notebooks and and how people get to from a certain point and um and i feel like we could be doing that like we talk about process from big systems issues you know in medicine you know but i don't necessarily think that we actually pay as much attention to the process of individual decisions, and um, and I think we need to go there um, with equal um, with with equal attention and vigilance. Yeah, and he, the next thing I want to ask you about is this is 
in part in the the uh, Mr. Green, and you say the crisis of the emergency department crowding turns beds occupied by Mr. Green into precious scarce resources. I love this sentence. It forces physicians like me to allocate compassion. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> talk talk about passion allocation. Yeah. Thank you for for bringing that up. I, I, because you know we talk up oftentimes of you know physicians and. Um, get get dung appropriately in many times about like our lack of compassion. Like I wish there was more compassion. And and it's as if compassion is like this tank. <laughs> you just gotta fill up. You know, just you just need more compassion. And we oftentimes don't necessarily address the issues that make people who are otherwise compassionate behave in ways that are perhaps quote unquote, not them. So again, going back to reframing the, the, the question, like what if you assume that everyone's compassionate and then you look at certain behaviors through that lens. And, you know, in that particular piece, uh, you know, we had an, uh, we have, you know, uh, our ER, like many other ERs, we have a lot of people with unstable housing, a lot of people with substance use issues who come into the ER for basically to get out of the cold. They're intoxicated in public. They come, they get brought in. This particular patient was someone who was, you know, there daily, if not twice a day, um, had been offered multiple resources many, many times, burned a bunch of bridges, continues to, you know, just... You know, someone who's had a, had a, had a difficult life, but it's freezing outside. Like I'm working it over and I said, it's freezing outside. And now we're faced with a crowding issue in the emergency department, which we had almost every bed was already filled with admitted people, people who are already admitted to the hospital, but they're in the ED. So we have no beds to see people and we have a big waiting room. We have a long, we have a huge wait. So how do I allocate my compassion? So the compassionate to be compassionate to Mr. Green was to keep him in the emergency department and let him sleep, at least till the morning when the shelters open up. There's also a risk he's going to go into alcohol withdrawal. Um, but then there's also, but then I'm being like, I'm not being compassionate to those people who are waiting in the waiting room, some of whom might have very serious um, medical problems going on. And so, and you can only go one way, like your compassion it's like it's a zero sum game. So depending upon where you're looking at my behavior and decisions that I make, I could be looked at as very compassionate or as a very, very cold and unfeeling doctor. In, in business, there's a business book that talked about embracing the genius of the end. But but sometimes there's or situations that happen. Sometimes there just are situations where one has to make a choice. One has to make a choice, you know, and that's like, and that's, and that's, isn't that the heart of like what a dilemma is, you know, which is, you know, you can't like you, you can't solve one problem with, with, without necessarily creating another one. Yeah. And in economics and business, we call it trade-offs. And I think that that, that's what has to happen. There's got to be time when you make a trade-off and you have to, it's not that you you can't regret your decision one way or the other, but you've got to make it because not to decide is to decide. Right. Exactly. And like I said, like not making a decision is not an option because that's a decision you're making. Um, and the, there's still going to be perilous situation consequences as a result of that. 
Yeah. Well, great stuff, Jay. Really appreciate it. But we are up against our next break. Want to remind our folks that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see previews to upcoming shows, as well as our show notes from all of our previous 400 and something odd episodes. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Dr. Jay Baruch and his book, Tornado of Life. And Doc, I wanted to ask you, we're big fans of the after action review concept borrowed from the military. And in the book, you mentioned that you attended monthly morbidity and mortality conferences, M&M. I don't know if that pun was deliberate, but um, and, and then you said this, the root of the problem in these cases isn't a lack of knowledge, but smart physicians who just got the story wrong. Can you kind of walk us through those conferences? What was discussed and what lessons do you take out of them? Yeah, we think that. So that's a, as a, a, since time immemorial, there's a, you know, this thing called the M, it's actually called the M&M, you know, and, and every specialty generally has one. And, and it's a way to, you know, it, I think in the past, it's been a little bit of a taking people's task and, and recent um, times has become more of an opportunity to, to reflect and understand on past practices to, to learn and to get better, uh, to improve um, moving forward. But it oftentimes takes a um, takes a hindsight sort of approach to things, and which is like, hey, just don't you know, don't do this. <laughs> um, listen to the patient more, or we should keep our differential diagnosis wide, like with premature closure. Invariably, it involves oftentimes it involves cognitive biases, you know, heuris- mental heuristics, um, and but we don't oftentimes talk about uh during those conferences 
just the contextual features of what happens, you know, like, like what was happening in that moment. You know, so it's one thing to say, you know, for example, like it, it's one thing to say, you know, you should, if you miss a diagnosis or you got the diagnosis wrong, because you, you, you thought it was one thing and ended up being another to say, you got to keep your differential diagnosis wide, for example, like keep more options on the table. However, when we're in the moment, oftentimes, like we think we make, we kept our differential wide, you know, um, I, uh, you know, I quoted uh, in the book uh, from the book um, being wrong and, and, uh, and what's so amazing about being wrong uh, is the fact that in the moment, it feels a lot like being right. <laughs> right, right. I love that line. Yeah. Right. That was great. It's amazing. And so, what are the, how how do we then dissect those things that were going on at that time that made us think that we had the entire story that we had it figured out um and you know in what ways did we feel certain in what ways did we feel uncertain what information did we have available at that time and how do we construct that narrative because when we think about stories you know think about the stories that that you enjoy um, reading, watching, you bring something to it. Like you bring your own experiences. Like some of these, the most, the most, I think the most enduring stories are the ones that leave place for the reader or for the viewer to step into it. So you're bringing yourself into it. You're not like this blank slate reading something. So when we're in that moment, like we're, you know, we're creating story, we're creating our own story. We're picking those details that are important and perhaps leaving others out. You know, this is the fact that we should keep our differential diagnosis, for example, wide, keep our options wide. Or is it the fact that, you know, we would just chose certain details and we paid attention to those details, maybe because they had an answer and we and we and we closed it. Like we're always looking to make a coherent narrative. And it's other times it's our it's our story. Our natural story-making brain that creates these coherent narratives, and they oftentimes and they sometimes work very, very well, and sometimes lead us astray. Right, and I'm just curious, Doc. Did you do the same type of thing, like in the ER, on a more frequent basis than monthly? Like, did you have a, a little confab after a shift or something just to talk about what happened, what went right, wrong? How could we do better? Yeah, we do that. I mean, like I'm at a, uh, I'm at Brown. We have, you know, a fantastic residency program. We have we're training um, amazing doctors who come in as amazing people and leave as amazing doctors. And we do this all the time. You know, this is part of like being a teacher. You know, I, I, I have to tell you that um, in my, in my years as an educator, like I, I don't, I don't know guys, whether I actually, I don't know if I actually teach anybody anything new in my work is sort of in narrative and story and thinking differently about what about medicine, but rather I feel like I sometimes provide opportunities for people to discover things that they've already know, <laughs> mm, love it. you know, and make connections through these disparate, these disparate fields. Um, and, there's so much knowledge. Like, for example, we were talking about data before. There's so much knowledge in our phones, right? They have little computers in their phone. They have all this information. And I feel like sometimes one of the best things, the most important jobs I have 
um, working side by side with colleagues, and even thinking about myself, is trying to interrogate your thinking process. Like, why did you think this way? What assumptions did you bring to the table? Um, why did you just concentrate on these details and not others? Um, why did you assume that they were there for this and not, you know, because they had a history for substance use in the past, for example, um, and they were there for back pain. Why did you assume that they had, you know, they were there um, to, because they were seeking um, opioids, for example, or narcotics. Um, and how did that necessarily impact the tone of your questions when you were asking them? These are all small, small little details, right? That oftentimes the can steer the clinical encounter in a direction that could be very positive, a very positive valence, or it could be a negative valence. Sure. You know, you, you get personal in a couple of the chapters in the book about your own medical issue. And at one point you had to pick a cardiac surgeon and you talk to a bunch of people and you get all these, you get this famous heart surgeon recommendation. And then you go see another guy and he reminded me of Dr. House from the TV. He had a you know terrible bedside manner. He was kind of rude and inaccessible. And, and he said, oh, your problem is nothing special. I did two of these this morning. Um, and you picked him. Can you explain the thinking behind that? No, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I wrote about it. There's a, so, so, yeah. So, so I had this, you know, one gentleman, this one surgeon who was just so polished and so elegant and so the, the epitome of the perfect physician, you know, um, just compassionate, compassionate, <laughs> well thought of, respectful for my wife, um, really spent time with us. Like I said, like I wanted him as my doctor, my my friend, my life coach, like I wanted him for everything. And then like after that, I had, a, you know, a, a, an appointment with this, you know, world famous heart surgeon. And I chose this who was supposed to be just an incredible, incredible um, technician, great hands, leader in his field, and his personality was a little bit less um, commendable. Let's put it that Say way. the least, yeah. <laughs> and I chose him. You know, I don't know why. Like we don't. Uh, I mean, and and I and as I wrote in that particular piece is that you know I feel like what I needed at that particular time was a really skilled adversary to push. You know. I mean, it was almost like a, it was almost like a competitive thing. Like I was going to be a competitive patient. Like I was going to be a better patient that you're I'm going to outpatient your doctoring. Like you're a great, you're a great, great surgeon. I'm going to outpatient you. Um, and of course it was all just, you know, I did like, I was going to, I left earlier. I was like, did got extubated. The reason who got taken out earlier, I was up earlier than expected. I was walking earlier than expected. I was discharged earlier than expected. And I paid the price <laughs> for, not, for trying to rush things. Well, what I found interesting about it is after you met with the, the world famous guy, the gruff guy, you, your wife and you looked at each other and you both said, he's our man. Yeah. It, 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 and yeah, that we kind both, of shocked me. It shocked us. It totally shocked us. And I can still see that scene. So this is like 2004, 2005. I can still see that scene. That scene. Like we're just looking at each other and I'm like, this is our guy. You know, I read a book many, many years ago, like in the 90s, called A Taste of My Own Medicine. 
when the doctor is the patient by a guy named Edward Rosenbaum. He was a doctor up in Oregon. Okay. And it was the book that the movie, the doctor was based on with Will Hurt. Sure. What did you learn from your experience being like in the ER and in, in the hospital and going through everything you went through? Yeah. You know, I got to tell you, I think I resented it. Like I resent, like, I think those, um, like the, and I was getting back to your question about, you know, why did I choose this particular surgeon? And I, I don't know. Part of it is like, we can't explain it. It's inexplicable. Like sometimes you say, this is the person I'm putting my, my life in your hands. However, there's also a part of me, you know, and this is like the writer part of me, the creative part of me. I always resist when you make things too neat, you know, and I felt like, People want when I once I was sick, I felt like there was an expectation that I was going to be a sick in just the right way. And I wasn't just a patient, I was a doctor patient. And and I kept on getting these questions about like how is, is it going to change you? Is it going to make you more compassionate? And I was being forced into this neat narrative. This convent like I I had to satisfy other people's expectations of what this experience was supposed to be. And and I always am sort of I'm, I don't want to say critical, but I always push back when narratives are too neat. Because mm-hmm. I, really, I feel like, like we oftentimes do that because it takes some work to embrace complexity, like, like the, the multiple sides of an experience, um, the good and the bad. It's like the multiple sides of people, like we're all sort of multifaceted and we have our, you know, we have our polished sides, we have our dented sides. Um, and that's just us, that's us as human beings. And I feel like these experiences themselves also, like we're not just one thing, we're three-dimensional. And oftentimes we, we sort of paint things, we like our things in two dimensions and a nice package with the bow. And I, oh God, I resist that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, no. it's, one of my, it's one of my many personality flaws. No, it's not. We contain multitudes, right? I mean, you you mentioned this around uh, Dr. Burnout. Uh, you know, they've got those three characteristics of burnout and you kind of say, yeah, it's more complicated than that. It's and much more complicated. Yep. I think you're right. Doc, I have to ask you because we've only got a minute left, but, and, and this was just a short little sentence in your book somewhere. Describe the pause from trauma centers. Yeah. The pause. Yeah. So this is, you know, after we have a death in the emergency department, it's really a moment where everyone just sort of stops, you know, and we don't let run off. We don't start doing our things. And it's like, we take a, we take a pause. Uh, we honor this experience, this person who has just died. Um, we pay our respects to the patient and the family if they're there. And I think it also forces us to sort of recognize the power of of what we do and to realize that that this is something that we sort of need to appreciate and recognize and dignify and really respect um, for the for the moment that that it is, because it's so easy to forget that. You know, that another a moment in our day, our shift is actually a profound human experience. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Dr. Jay Baruch, this has been fabulous. What an honor to be able to chat with you. Love the book. Highly recommend it. And I just want to end by you tell the story of walking in your neighborhood and a neighbor drives by you. And I, I think this was during COVID. And he rolled down his window and he screamed at you. You're my hero. We wish you the best. And you kind of felt embarrassed and said, 
I'm not a hero. I'm an ER doc. Well, doc, you are a hero. Thank you very much for being on the soul of enterprise. And folks, we'd like to remind you, and Ed's going to take you the rest of the way home, by the way. So we got one more segment, but uh, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors, including Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the diamond water paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We are on The Soul of Enterprise with Dr. Jay Baruch, author of Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER. And uh, Jay, one of the, the, the... chapters is entitled there's a big difference between dying and dying now um and it's the the it's all about is a patient getting their wishes with regard to end of life and you talk about the confusion that happens when they're sent over even from hospice where the paperwork's not with them what do you think is there a better way for us to ensure that that we that patients do get their wishes followed and what should people do to make sure of that yeah that's that's such an important question you know and since you know, but since the Patient Self-Determination Act, like in like what, 1991, like we're at it for 30 years, we're still doing not a great job as far as having these conversations. Um, first, and for, first and foremost, actually having the conversation, not just physicians or um, clinicians, you know, caregivers with their um, with their patients, but patients having um, having these discussions with their family members. You know, it's really a hard conversation to have. You know, uh, like you talked about my heart surgery. Like I had a hard conversation. People, you got to fill out your advanced directive, and I was like, uh, "Meanwhile, my wife is like, oh, you sprained your ankle. We're doing nothing.'" <laughs> 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 jokes around about, um, but yeah. So first is having these conversations, and secondly, is um, making certain that um, 
that these discussions as, as physicians like we have to really document these discussions because sometimes people you know we have to have the discussions we have to document those discussions in the patient's wishes and make sure it's available in the medical record and i have to tell you that you know with electronic medical records it should make things easier however it is often like it is just this repository it's like that drawer you open up and you're looking for that like you're looking for the tape and you find the pens and you'll find like the string and the rubber bands and it's all everything else there that's oftentimes what it's like in the electronic the, the medical record because there's so much information there to find to, to sort out the signal from the noise is hard so to make the processes so you're you realize there's some kind of advanced care planning that's that's already been um discussed and it's there and it's up to date and then it's up to us to honor those wishes and then even when everything is perfect sometimes it's really hard for let's say for example for family members to think about like is these can is this condition that i'm dealing with now is this what they were talking about you know so if they're you know if they're short of breath and let's say they might need to be intubated for example and they don't want to and they initially said they don't want an airway um, if there was like life-threatening situation, is this, are we in a life-threatening situation? Is this reversible if we intubate you and, and so let's say get the fluid off your lungs, for example, you know, just one example. Um, like if there's a pneumonia, we can just treat you pneumonia. Is, there, is that, so it, it gets complicated. That's why it's important to have, um, a, a power of attorney, a healthcare proxy, someone who can assess what's going on in the moment and knows the values and the wishes of the particular patient. And then lastly, is realizing that oftentimes these decisions are not necessarily um, guided by medical situations alone, but by family dynamics. You know, sometimes people, our patients will say, listen, I don't want to be the one who quote unquote killed mom, mm -hmm. you know, who made the decision that, that we should just like let her go because my, because they don't get along with their siblings or whatever, and she's going to be held responsible. So people make decisions for so many different reasons. And even when the best things are happening and everything works perfect and according to plan, like I said, in the, in the particular piece, the difference between dying and then having that reality happen now. And it can be profoundly intense um, for family members to, to recognize that the end is near and the end is now. Along those lines, and I guess extrapolating, extrapolating that out from a society basis, are, are, are we, is our medical system ready for the baby boomers end of life needs? I mean, this is, this is a major problem, I think. You know, I, I look at the, um, the, the crowding problems like we have, like, what do we have? We have a crowding problem in emergency departments has become unconscionable, you know, eight, 10 hour waits in, in places. A lot of that's due to lack of staff in the hospitals. Um, you know, from we we emerged from the pandemic, like we didn't we never went back to normal. Like there's no normal. Um, we're in a new landscape now. We have we have, you know, a lot of people left. Um and um and then you have you know the, the way things are incentivized the whole business model of healthcare is you know we don't have a lot of you know we we don't cherish our most precious resource in medicine who i think are our primary care providers you know we should be really i mean if people had primary care providers they had insurance they had primary care providers they had primary care providers who would then allow to do the work that they love doing 
and don't feel the financial pressures of having to just turn people over and see people every 10 minutes or 15 minutes, if patients can actually get in touch with their primary care provider, can actually get an appointment with their primary care providers, these are all feel like doable things. But these reasons are a lot why people come to the ER. You know, they call their primary care provider, but they're overwhelmed. They couldn't get in to see them or they can get ahead of an appointment in two weeks. Um, and it never used to be this way or it was never this bad. So yeah. we need to, I think, I think those small things are wrinkles that we can figure out. Well, what we've had uh, Dr. Paul Thomas on the show a couple of times. He's a, a direct primary care provider in, in South Detroit, and he has his own subscription-based practice, which is, and he's talked to us a lot about that. Are you familiar with that model at all? And do you think that that's one potential solution? Is that a, con a quote unquote concierge not, medicine? It's not concierge. It's it's more it it's more direct primary care in that you I got gotcha. you, you subscribe to the direct primary, and then if you have something catastrophic, you have insurance for that outside. Right, um, I you know I, in in what I do you know which is you know I care for a lot of people who can't get care elsewhere. Right, you know what I'm really conscious of is that that this march forward, you know what we call medical progress, um, uh, doesn't leave communities and, and and populations behind, you know, and I I feel like. Where we are thinking about all these fancy uses of technology um, to sort of change practices, you know, home monitoring, for example, you know, telehealth. And I have patients who came and get their insulin filled because it's too expensive, right? They came and if they can't afford their albuterol for their asthma, like we haven't addressed some really basic challenges that so many of our population face. Um, and and I feel anytime I'm moving, we're thinking about we're moving forward, we have to say, are we pulling everybody forward as well? Or are we, make, are we creating a widening healthcare disparity gap? Yeah, well, and as you say, if, uh, uh, waiting in the emergency room is an oxymoron. <laughs> That's- that, Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, you shouldn't even have a waiting room in an emergency department. It's like they shouldn't be in the same sentence. Like waiting in emergency shouldn't belong. It doesn't belong in the same sentence. And part of it is, I imagine, we only got a, a minute left, is be, because the, the people who are going to the emergency room would be perhaps better serve, served if Walmart had a place where they could go for they have strep throat. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> and, and and I have to tell you, getting back to your original question, um, you know, people are sicker. People are sicker. You know, we're seeing like not just the baby, you know, not just the aging population, but we're seeing a sicker population. People with a lot of chronic medical problems because of challenges that that went unaddressed for multiple reasons. And and we have to sort of come to an understanding of how we're going to have care for these people who would not just need more care um, and need more attention, but there's more of them. Wow. This has been profound. And as I said to Ron yesterday, your book is intense. It really is. I highly recommend it. Uh, Dr. Jay Rook, thanks so much for being a guest on, on the Soul of Enterprise. Oh, thank you so much, guys. This has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thank All right, you. Ron. Hang, hang with us on a live close, Dr. Brook, and then we can say goodbye. What do we got coming up next week, Ron? Next week, Ed, we have Kimberly Joseph in back, and she's going to talk to us about ESG, social entrepreneurship, a whole bunch of other stuff. All right. Well, I look forward to that and I'll see you in 167 hours.
This has been the soul of enterprise business and the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction and deliver insights. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We will have full show notes uh, with our conversation with Dr. Jay Baruch today and where you can find his book. Also, if you want to contact Ed or myself, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.